Hello and welcome back to AHP's Off The Record. My name is Anna. And my name is Jo. And this is actually our first podcast back in 2022. Quite a bit has changed since we first started doing our podcast back in July 2020, um, especially regarding the pandemic. It absolutely has. Um, So restrictions have now lessened, travel abroad has resumed and work life is getting back to finding some sort of new normal. Yeah, definitely. And we have a couple of different podcasts coming up in the next couple of months, but we thought that our priority would be to make sure that we at least record with all 14 of our AHP professions and we are currently at number 10. So today we're interviewing our 11th AHP profession. Um, We're really looking forward to learning more about it. This is a a profession that I haven't really known really much about at all before this, so very excited. And we're really grateful to be joined today by orthoptist Rachel Grayson. Um, Rachel, do you mind introducing yourself? Yep. Hi, my name's Rachel. I'm an orthoptist and I work for University Hospital Storset and I'm really excited to be talking about orthoptics. So at this point, as usual, um, it's my turn to attempt to define what orthoptists do. So orthoptists are specialist allied health professionals who diagnose and treat defects in eye movement and how the eyes work together. These issues can be caused by problems with the muscles around the eyes or issues with the nerves enabling the brain to communicate with the eyes. Orthoptists work with a variety of children and adults of all ages including those with neurological conditions such as stroke, brain tumours or MS. They provide a range of treatment and management options for conditions causing symptoms such as blurred vision, double vision and oscillating vision. And this is where objects appear to move even when they're still. Patients might be provided with eye patches, eye exercises, prisms or glasses, which can help to relieve symptoms and drastically improve quality of life. I hope that's a reasonable definition. That's a great definition. (laughs) Okay, so I think we'll get started with the rest of the podcast. So it is my my turn to ask the first question. So um, tell us, Rachel, tell us a little bit about how you became an orthoptist. So when I was doing my A-levels, I was doing biology and we were doing a lot about the eye and just um, the head area in general. So eyes kind of piqued my interest. And obviously the first thing you think of with eyes is opticians or optometrists. So that really was my first point of uh, research, looking into that degree. And just by chance, I stumbled across orthoptics versus optometry on a student forum and thought, oh, I'll just see what orthoptics entails. And then it was hospital based which sounded really interesting uh working with all age groups which again was something I really really wanted to do um so then I looked into the different courses available and yeah picked my degree based on that really I did go to the Bournemouth hospital as well and had a day there to see what the job role was about because I had no idea and I still didn't really know what was going on when I was watching the orthoptists, but it looked really cool. So, <laughs> <laughs> I think one of the things we've come across with a lot of the AHPs that we've spoken to is that the AHP professions are often things that you sort of stumble across um, and not really things that are um, promoted as, as some of the sort of key careers when you're, when you're in school. So it's great to hear how, how you came across it. 
Yeah, I felt like I had to research so much to find out even just a little bit about it. And, you know, if you talk to the teachers at school, they don't really know what it is either. So you're really finding it all out on your own. So things mm. like this are great because it just gives everybody a bit more information about what possible career choice they could be getting themselves into. Definitely. And maybe it'd be good to hear a little bit about what you're doing at the moment and what your current job role is. Yeah, so currently I'm a senior orthoptist at University Hospitals Dorset. So um, band six role now, which is great moving up in the career ladder. And I have two extended roles, which one is involving straight patients and the other is intravitreal injections. So, yeah, two different specialities I did not see myself getting into when I first started orthoptics. Very different, um, but yeah, really exciting. And I've only just started doing the injection. So that's new and it's, uh, yeah, alarming to be so close to the eye. <laughs> but but uh, something else to add to the toolkit for definite. What, what do these injections mean and what are you doing with them? So with the eye unit, you've got different medical conditions. Um, so you've got different consultants who manage glaucoma or medical retina. And within the eye unit, really the nurses, the optometrists and the orthoptists are starting to get involved in non-medical treatment options um, or non-medical practitioner-led treatment options. So the injection part of the treatment used to be administered by the doctors, but now for effectiveness and better clinical running times, it just seemed like that bit of the treatment could be done by somebody else who had knowledge of the eye who was trained up to do it so nurses can do it optometrists can do it orthoptists can do it now and it means that the doctor can focus on the management and the diagnosing and we can do the treatment in injection only clinics the patient can come in for their injection and go out the same day within 20 minutes so it's a lot more patient friendly that way that still does sound quite scary <laughs> yeah I mean I yeah when I signed up for it I thought I could as an orthoptist that we kind of sit back from a patient we don't really touch the eye that often so to go in with a needle and pierce the eye it is <laughs> it's a different sensation how how do you train for that I mean I know with different types of injections you might have going in orange or um, but I'm not quite sure how you can how you can simulate that before you actually do one in a real person's eye. Yeah, I mean, it was in-house training and it might be done differently in different trusts within the NHS. But what we decided, and I think it was because the nurses were taught this way, was that a consultant would give us some theory. So a lesson on the theory of the anatomy of the eye and why it's required. And then we watched the consultant performed 20 and then you literally get hands-on and, and do it yourself and do a hundred supervised injections and then after that you're free to go on your own. I feel like a hundred supervised is a decent amount. It was a good I amount. was just gonna say yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, a hundred is a decent amount. And um a lot of other AHP professions in terms of when you're um, when you've just qualified or newly qualified, tend to do rotations. Is that something that you also did? No. So orthoptics, uh, within the, the, the degree itself, we did all of our placements in the three years degree. So we did uh, three placements per year 
and orthoptics it does um, cover a lot of conditions within orthoptics but we wouldn't do any rotations so we would see a range of patients in the same sort of clinic or maybe one clinic would be more adult based one would be more children based but usually you would see everything you need to see within your placements in the degree and then you go out into the our unit and do the same job so we don't do rotations as, as such but once we're sort of what we call the core orthoptics is is sort of done as band five then as a band six you can go into specialisms such as stroke um low vision some people go to glaucoma or medical retina fields um so there's extension that way as you Mm. progress i think that's quite nice and it's quite similar to other professions too you kind of um like for us we'll do our rotations as band fives but we will then as we start to get higher up the bands and you will tend to kind of pick that area that you you feel like you are not necessarily more familiar with but what draws you the most in isn't it yeah I think the thing you've kind of yeah like you said drawn to it a bit more so I think you can see in the orthoptists in my department some are more drawn to maybe the school screening service or some are drawn to the stroke or some are drawn to yeah injections it's just I think it depends on what what you're more interested in and I know the injection side of things is something that you've sort of developed into a role of doing are there are there lots of other um specialties that you can sort of develop and do further training and and get sort of more skills or um new roles within optics yeah, so at the moment I'm doing a master's in advanced clinical optometry and ophthalmology ran by UCL. And I think a lot of the masters at the moment are being produced by other universities as well within the ophthalmology field so that you can gain more advanced skills within the eye conditions such as glaucoma, ocular emergencies, medical retina, cataracts and then transfer those skills into into your work so become a person who's running your own their own clinic and managing and diagnosing and treating on, on their own yes jack of all eye trades yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> Um, so the next bit of the podcast feels a little bit um, from, again, what we've mentioned at the beginning, a little bit more outdated now. But I know the last was it two, two and a half years now have been a massive case of turning everyone's world upside down. And particularly those working in healthcare, all of our lives and our roles have been greatly affected by the pandemic. So it'd just be good to hear a bit about how the pandemic has affected your role and, and what your thoughts are on how it's affected sort of orthoptics in general? Yeah so as orthoptics in our unit we're outpatient based I mean we were pretty much cancelled as soon as the lockdown officially started because it's it wasn't deemed as urgent care all of our patient lists were pretty much cancelled and we went very much into an admin role mm-hmm. so we spent all of the time we still went into the hospital but we would read through notes and see who was potentially able to be discharged from the service um, who could be pushed back a little bit further who needed a telephone call with some reassurance or some guidance so 
yeah, it changed the way we thought about our patients and the way that we interacted with them. And I think it just made us all feel like we really needed the patients to to see them and to feel like we were doing the job properly. It just felt like we weren't really giving them 100% without having that patient contact. And actually, one of the things that maybe in terms of this question is looking at kind of now we're at the towards the end of the pandemic um how has it affected your your service really and are you looking at really large backlog numbers and how are you guys trying to tackle that if that is the case yeah yeah backlog numbers are definitely a, a problem especially with people that were going off sick at the time and then that carrying forward now and well, luckily, we're, we're getting through it quite well. And I think with the way that we looked through all of the patient lists in the past during the lockdown, we've become a lot more strict at what needs to be followed up versus what can be discharged. So I think it has helped our practice that way. Uh, we've also developed some telephone clinics in our stroke service. So now we can communicate with the patients at home and see if they actually need to come into the hospital for any treatment so I think it's given the patients a lot more say in whether they want to come in and whether they actually need to come in I think with the patients in the pediatric clinics it does it has been a bit more challenging because normally parents want to both be there and Mm. we've had to limit it to one parent per child in the room and you can see how anxious one parent is by waiting outside the room and you feel really horrible to say no you can't both come in um, and the child feels probably a little bit un- uneasy with one of their parents outside but I think that's going to carry on forward for a little bit longer just because it's easier in some way to just say this is the blanket rule for the time being. I know with lots of particularly outpatient services over the past couple of years there has been a big shift with some cases to sort of more virtual um, appointments and assessments. Um, I know you mentioned sort of telephone consultations, but is there has there been any um, shift or increase in in that side of things with orthoptics? I, I imagine it must be quite difficult to try and assess someone's eyes yeah. over a video call. Yeah, so there has been a lot of discussion about whether apps can be used with parents testing their children at home. So some, say an orthoptist could watch the parent test their child's vision on an app um, and be recorded doing it. And it's just whether that's going to be reliable enough going forward. I think during COVID, maybe it was the best thing we had as an option, but I don't know whether we've got enough reliable research to say that that's going to give us an effective score to carry on treatment or stop treatment. So it it could be a work in progress though. I think a lot of parents are happy to do it. So I think it's just finding the best way that we can incorporate technology into our service a bit more because it would be nice. And you mentioned actually before we started the the podcast that you were actually living abroad before coming and you literally started work just before the pandemic. So do you want to tell us a little bit about about that and kind of how it was coming in and then all of a sudden being thrown into into a pandemic basically yeah so I, I worked for two years in the NHS in Portsmouth for my first band five job role and then I wanted to do traveling and I wanted to go off for a little bit 
So I decided to go to the furthest away point I could find, which was New Zealand, and then <laughs> lived there for four years. And I was actually a, a sole orthoptist. So I was the only orthoptist working in the eye department in New Zealand where I worked. And I was really looking forward to coming back and working in a team again. <laughs> and and orthoptics is a small profession in the UK, but it's even smaller in New Zealand. There's only about 20 to 30 orthoptists in New Zealand. What? <laughs> yeah, yeah that's, that seems mental to me. There's a, in the whole of New Zealand? In the whole of New Zealand, it's a very, very small profession. I thought you were going to say 20 to 30 in the region that you were in, not in the whole country. <laughs> wow. Yeah, so in terms of CPD and, you know, getting more clinical skill knowledge or more opportunities, I was really excited to come back to the UK and really get going on all of that again. So I came back in February 2020, just got back into the swing of clinic and I think within two weeks we got put into lockdown (laughs) (laughs) and then you've got yeah so that would have been and then you went straight into kind of more of that admin role so actually a lot of that clinical aspect that you were looking for you you weren't allowed to do no no so I felt because I'd had about a two months break before I came back and then it was sort of I in terms of orthoptic reports you can write them in different ways in different departments so normally just depending on what department you're you're in it could be that it's on a computer system it could be handwritten paper notes it could be you write it out fully or diagrams and I was just getting my head all around that really and then to go into an admin role where I had to read all of these reports and just get used to what the normal practice was in that in that hospital because it could be that they like treating at a certain point and then discharging or they like continuing the care and to make the judgment calls on somebody you'd never met, met before and, and I hadn't really met the consultants either so I didn't know whether discharging their patients would be something they were happy with <laughs> <laughs> so I guess there was a lot of anxiety that I hadn't hadn't really thought about until talking about it now it was, yeah I was quite anxious I guess you're coming into a team where you don't know or you're getting to know the processes. And then really in the, in the beginning of the pandemic, no one knew what, what they should be doing, really, because everything was just thrown up in the air. So if you're trying to learn from people who also have absolutely no idea what's going on and what's going to happen, that must have been quite, yeah. a, quite an adjustment. Yeah, I mean, you are somebody because say a child on patching is brought back every maybe eight to ten weeks. And then if you ask somebody, should we delay them by another two months? And they say, I don't know if we're still going to be in lockdown in two months, then you've got all of these questions that are up in the air. And I think I think our managers did a really, really good job because they kept reassuring us that whatever clinical decision we made, they would stand by us. Um, so we didn't ever feel like we were just thrown in the deep end and left on our own. Our managers were quite supportive. That's good. That makes such a big difference because we know that they also were probably just like, I'm not sure. I, yeah. don't, I don't really know. Um, but it's good when they are giving you that support, especially when from that clinical standpoint, just like, OK, we we trust your judgment. Um, and that just, I guess, gives you that reassurance. Definitely. Yeah. And yeah. And then ringing the par- parents and the patients and hearing that, you know, they were quite relieved not to come in anyway. 
I don't think anyone wanted to come in at the time. So as long as they were told it was fine not to come in and just carry on, I think that they were fine with that as well. Mm. I think everyone was too busy buying their toilet paper. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so since you've come back, you mentioned obviously about CPD opportunities. Um, like typically, where do you tend to source most of your CPD from an orthoptist point of view? I know um, for us, there's there's lots of kind of like the the typical um, kind of like doing journal clubs and um, doing in-service trainings and things like that. But then there's actually quite a lot on social media. I don't know if that's something that's like regularly used yeah so uh, we have the British and Irish Orthoptic Society and they're really active on social media like Twitter so normally you can see something on Twitter a link to any CPD opportunities and we have a website that is always updated regularly Um, we have lots of different forum groups with the different specialisms that you could be interested in and sometimes you know webinars will be advertised um you can put in questions on the forum chats as well and if somebody's looking for research opportunities they might be on there too so yeah we've got quite a good website twitter following and then within our departments, we normally would do journal journal clubs or interesting cases or audits. So, yeah, lots of CBD opportunities. So I think moving on to our final section, which is um, one of our recurring themes, we call it the three fives. Um, and it's giving us an opportunity to hear a bit more about just how you've enjoyed your career so far and whether it matches up to what you're expecting when you started off and qualified. Um, So the first question is, when you qualified as an orthoptist, where did you see yourself in five years' time? Yeah, so this question was interesting because when I was at university and I found out that you could work abroad with orthoptics, it was very much in my mind that I would be abroad working as an orthoptist at some point. So I think it was about five years later that I was in New Zealand working on my own in the hospital. So I definitely ticked that box. I think once I hit that, I, then I thought, what's next? Because that was <laughs> that was my goal at the time at university. But then it really was, what am I going to do next? And I guess um, you've mentioned to us the the areas and the roles that you're working in at the moment. But if you hadn't gone down that route, then what other areas within orthoptics do you think you would be most interested to work in? Uh, within orthoptics? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think the neurology side is the most appealing. And it would have been, yeah, around that sort of area. Um, I don't probably management roles could have been an option so being a lead working on my own and managing myself and the way the clinic ran for for myself it did seem quite good to have that side of things sorted so coming into a team and somebody else doing it for me is really really nice but maybe (laughs) in the future it would be nice to manage a whole team out of curiosity obviously that was a question about kind of what career path you would have within orthoptics but is there was there any other career that you had considered when you were growing up yeah so um I know it sounds like a bit of a suck up but physiotherapy 
is very <laughs> and there's some people describe orthoptics as a physio for the eyes I like that yeah so I think it's the the nerve involvement the muscle involvement trying to balance things together so it does have some similar traits to physiotherapy so very healthcare based you are aren't you <laughs> well, a completely different one I think when I was really really young I wanted to be a lawyer but realized writing essays was not my speciality so that one was quickly across on the list and then randomly an estate agent seems really appealing <laughs> I mean it does it does sound fun very again it's very client facing and people facing so it sounds like you're quite good working with people so that's that's good so the next question is five things that you didn't necessarily know about your profession before you started studying it. Yeah, so I could reel off a whole list of what I didn't know about orthoptic. The first one was that I guess I'm just going to name little facts about it. So I didn't know that the eye was an extension of the brain when I started to study the eye, mm -hmm. uh, which once I started to study it made it seem really really scary because I thought oh wow there's a lot more going on than just the eyeball at the front. <laughs> I didn't know that vision develops up until seven years old so that's why we see a lot of paediatric patients because it's really important to have their vision improved before that cu critical cutoff point at seven years old and I didn't know that orthoptists did see patients of all ranges so we sometimes get babies in clinic and we can sometimes see adults who are 99 years old following a stroke so it's really varied uh, like you mentioned earlier I didn't know we were an allied health profession before I became an orthoptist so finding out about all the other allied health professions is really interesting as well and I didn't know I would spend my life telling people that I'm not an optician <laughs> <laughs> that's I can imagine that's really common so common because it goes from, oh, so you're an optician and then you say, oh, no, I'm not an optician. And they say, oh, you so are you like a doctor? And you say, no, I'm, I'm not a doctor. I'm, I'm an orthoptist. And then they go, oh, OK. But, you know, they haven't really they haven't taken it in. <laughs> they have no idea. They, they, no don't, idea. they don't know. But that's why we do things like this. So hopefully it's a little bit easier for people to understand what the difference is, because even within allied health professions, like occupational therapists get called physiotherapists and vice versa which to I think everyone's annoyance is the fact that they would like people to just know what they do especially because they work so hard at it and they spend about three plus years doing degrees specifically for these professions yeah so next question is we'd love to hear about five things that you enjoy about your job yeah, so uh, the variability. I love going into work and not knowing what's going to happen. I think if I just knew every day that it was going to be the same, then it wouldn't really fulfill fulfill me in any way. But going in and not knowing what's going to happen keeps it really interesting. Um, I like that the eye unit is an outpatient setting Monday to Friday because I get my weekends free. <laughs> no, that is important. That is important. Yeah. Um, my colleagues are really, really lovely. So I think it just must be a general thing with allied health professions that most of the people that go into those professions are really lovely. Um, so that makes it nice working with people who are like-minded and really easygoing and, and friendly and chatty. So work's always fun. There's never a dull moment. 
I really, really enjoy seeing children and their sight improving because, you know, it's such an important part of your life being able to see. So when things improve, it's really, really nice to see that they they're getting better and the parents are happy and you just get a lot of satisfaction from seeing that. It must be really scary for parents as well. Um, just having to to navigate that, I guess. I don't know very much about the eye and I don't know if I had, if my child, if they had issues with their vision, it's, it's so important in terms of just how we function day to day that that must be quite scary for them, but also maybe quite a lot of pressure on, on you guys in terms of just getting that right. So it is improving. Yeah. I think, like you said, we learn about our, our professions over a course of three years doing a degree. So to try and say to a parent in a 20 minute appointment you know this is the eye condition this is why it's happened this is what you need to do to treat it it's all that it's a bit overwhelming for the parents um so i think we just try and give them as much reassurance and say that you know research has shown that this will improve it just needs a lot of time and effort on your behalf at home and say we know we've had plenty of of times where children scream and cry but you can get through this (laughs) I'm going off uh, off topic a little bit here but I'm just sort of sitting here thinking I know within within physio for example we have a huge issue of um giving out a load of exercises and then people just never doing them um but I feel like vision is such an important thing and it must be so I mean I'm, I'm very lucky to have had pretty good eyes but it must be so difficult and distressing when when your vision is not doing what you need it to do you find you get fairly good compliance with I mean I'm sure it's more difficult getting getting children to do it for parents to to sort of encourage children to do it but do you get generally good compliance with with the sort of treatments that you're giving I think with patching therapies so where we we send a child off with maybe a box of patches and say do it for two hours a day um, give them some posters, some stickers, everything we can give them to try and make it more fun. We we tend to do quite well there. I, it it does depend on how much the parents involved. So I think it just depends sometimes on whether the parent believes you that it is it's going to work because it seems so simple to just to cover an eye. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's not until they start to come back and see it improve that they go, oh, this is working. So so we can carry on doing it. So. I, I guess with physiotherapy, because it's um, maybe more subjective, so the patient has to feel the benefit to carry on the exercises where we can objectively measure the vision and say, look, it's improving. We do have that goal to go, you're you're almost there, keep going. But we we do well with those ones. Sometimes other exercises, they're not not so good. I think we might have cut you off before your uh, fifth thing you enjoyed about your job. Oh, well, actually, yeah, it was, so I'm doing the master's at the moment. So, yeah, opportunities uh, for learning more and, mm. and yeah, anything where you can put your hand up and say, yeah, I want to do that. It's, it's really easy within the NHS to say, please give me that opportunity to do something else. And you seem to be able to do it, I think, within the NHS system anyway. I think that's something that, that I really notice about a lot of pretty much all, all the HPs we've spoken to is just that passion to to learn and constantly develop um, and I think that's such a nice thing and the fact that there are so many learning opportunities out there um, is really exciting. Yeah I think it just seems like all managers at the moment are asking you know 
everybody how can we make the service better what do you think could help um how can we get patients seen quicker how can we make services more efficient so it seems to be that it's the right time at the moment if you want to get in the allied health professions to to put your hand up and say i can do something differently absolutely and that leads on quite nicely to our our last question so what would you tell prospective students um, if they were thinking about becoming an orthoptist? What tips? I would say 100% become an orthoptist. <laughs> <laughs> I'd say ask your nearest hospital eye service if they if they have orthoptists and can I come and watch somebody for a day? I know it's been difficult during COVID for that to happen, but hopefully shadowing or just a work experience day can happen again in the future. And I'm sure lots of departments around the UK would be happy for people to come in and learn a bit more about orthoptics. Um, we always need more orthoptists. As I've said, we're such a small profession that, you know, if you go on NHS jobs, you're bound to see a post advertised for an orthoptist somewhere. <laughs> um, and um, I think when you start the, the course, it might seem like you're learning a foreign language because there's so many terms that you've never come across in your life but the more you keep persevering the more it will click and it will come into place and you'll eventually see that it all does make sense and you are on a very privileged pathway to becoming an orthoptist. Nice on your course um, when you were a student how many of you were there? So I was at University of Liverpool and when I applied there was only a course in the Uni University of Liverpool and University of Sheffield at that point so that was 2010 and mm. I think there was probably about 30 students in my year at that point okay and it was a, th a three-year degree three yeah year degree and okay. Sheffield was the same three-year degree I only chose Liverpool because I have family there so I was a little bit more drawn to Liverpool but both universities are excellent now you'd also still have Liverpool and Sheffield there's another site in Glasgow, which is a four-year degree. Um, hmm. So I think Glasgow and Liverpool are Bachelor of Science. Um, Sheffield is a Bachelor of Medical Science. And then recently, there has been a new course at UCL, which is a master's. So you can do it in two years if you come via another degree that's kind of science related, I think. And you mentioned you were studying biology. Is that the um, the only subject that's sort of essential in order to apply for the course? Or was there anything else that was um, other subjects that you needed to have done at A-level? I think it was two sciences. So I did biology and chemistry and maths. Um, so I think as long as you had two sciences, that was the, the criteria and maybe one other. And I had a look earlier just out of curiosity and all of them are three Bs. So Glasgow, Sheffield and Liverpool are three Bs. Really useful, I think, for anyone who might be hopefully listening and thinking about applying to go into the course. I think the message is do it. Yeah. <laughs> and I think they'd always get people through clearing as well. So even if, you know, you're not sure definitely apply through clearing too, because, you know, you could stumble across it and really love it. Amazing. Well, Rachel, it's been so lovely speaking to you and hearing a bit more about orthoptics. It's such a pleasure to hear about the different professions that we just don't know as much about, and particularly those within, within our IHP family. So 
Thank you so much for joining us. That's okay. Thank you for having me. listening to another episode of AHP's Off The Record. We hope you really enjoyed Rachel's story about getting into her career. We've added a few resources and some links to some social media pages in our episode description, so please check them out. And we have a couple more really exciting podcasts to come in the next couple of months, so hopefully we'll see you then. Mm-hmm.